Uh, so let's do a quick recap. We have a ton to get through. Uh, I went about six minutes over in the first service. The good news is in Four Points Economy, Brent usually goes like eight to ten minutes over. So I really gave, give you like four minutes back of your life. Uh, it's, how I, it's the math that I use there. So actually you're getting out quicker than you normally would. Uh, so let's recap, though. we got to recap because this is a weird break in the text. Uh, we have, right, the last several weeks, we've had this kind of buildup of what is the tabernacle and gathering resources and altar of incense and we had the high, priest, high priestly garments, that's hard to say, uh, and now all of a sudden we kind of get this, this change of lens back to the people. The people have been camped at Mount Sinai, Moses and the elders have made multiple trips up and down. Uh, in Exodus 19, 8, upon hearing the commands of God from Moses, the people answer, remember this, because it's key, 19, 8, the people answer, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We see in chapter 20, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, and immediately following the people in verses 18 and 19, they ask God to no longer speak directly to them, right? The mountain and the thunder is too scary, it's too overwhelming, they're obviously millennials, uh, and they're like, we only want to hear from Moses. We need a safe space, whatever that means, shut up. So, right, um, we only want to hear from Moses, we only want to hear from Moses, uh, is what we see in 19, 18 and 19. And then in 24, verse 3, Moses confirms the covenant between God and the people. And the people again, <laughs> my daughter just texted me uh, something very inappropriate. So uh, I should have turned that off on my iPad. I apologize. So she just called me a very mean name. Um, and so uh, verse 24, chapter 24, verse 3, Moses confirms the covenant between God and the people. And again, the people say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So we see this twice. As the people receive the covenant, as they receive the law, as they receive instructions, the people say, whatever the Lord commands, we will do. Whatever the Lord commands, we will do. That's critical. So Moses then goes back up on the mountain, and he stays for 40 days and 40 nights, which is a significant number in the Bible. 40 days and 40 nights is a time of testing. And what we're going to see here is that Moses is tested and the Israelite people are tested. So he goes on the mountain to speak with God and receive instructions for building the tabernacle, the priestly garments. And the people of Israel have been left at the foot of the mountain with Aaron, Moses' brother, the high priest we talked about last week, while Moses is away. And again, last week we looked at those high priestly garments and their symbolism. And the sermon concluded with Jesus as the ultimate high priest. We're going to see that again today. We're going to go through four points. The final point is going to be atonement, but it's a foreshadowing of atonement. This story in 32 doesn't end with reconciliation, doesn't end with atonement. It ends with Moses making an offering, an offer of atonement, and God saying no. So we're going to look at a foreshadowing of this atonement we're going to see Aaron and the Israelites make an absolute mockery of worship, the altar, and the relationship with God. Moses is going to intervene, and Moses is going to have to be the Christ figure. Now, to quote John Calvin, our hearts are an idol factory. And if you're from the Bible Belt, maybe you've heard the saying, idle hands are the devil's workshop. That's what we're going to see here today. In chapter 32, we're going to examine the irony of idolatry. Titled the sermon today, The Irony of Idolatry. 
It's a little bit like Alanis Morissette. I don't know that everything I'm going to point out is truly ironic, but I'm not an English major, so just hang with me. Uh, But the irony of idolatry, because, think about this, our hearts, back to Calvin's quote, are sin factories, are idol factories. Our natural desire is self over God. Our natural desire is lie over truth. Our natural desire is sin over righteousness. And our natural desire is the now over eternity. So as we get ready for chapter 32 of Exodus, let's pray. Father, dear God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the blessing and the honor and the privilege of being able to come into your house today to praise you, to worship you, to sing songs to you. God, also... I thank you for the opportunity and the blessing it is for you, Lord, to point out our sin to us, to call us to repentance, and then, God, to offer the perfect sacrifice in our place. Speak to us through your word today. I am not worthy, God, of anything that comes out of my mouth. Lord, I pray that you would speak through me. Use your word to pierce our heart. It's in your name I pray. Amen. 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 Now this chapter and story has to be read as a harsh warning to all believers. This is not just a historical account of how fast and easy sin creeps into our own hearts and our own lives. We as Adam and Eve desire to be like God. right? We desire to gratify ourselves with our own creations and our own knowledge. I actually would argue, and I'm going to point out, I think that we actually want to be an inch taller than God. I know from the pulpit, we say a lot of times up here that we try to make God just an inch taller than us. But man, as I've read and studied about idolatry and as the Lord has spoken to me these past couple of weeks, I just got to be honest. It may not be you, but I think that I want to be an inch taller than God. I want to make the decisions in my own life. I want to determine my destiny and my outcome. And what an absolute sin that is. We so quickly forget where God has brought us from. Take a second and think back through your own salvation experience. He brought you out of darkness and into light. He made you new creations. He's given you a new heart. He's made you brothers and sisters with Christ. He's made you co-heirs. He's gone to prepare a place for us with him. He has sent his Holy Spirit to groan and to pray on our behalf, to live in us and to guide us. He has brought us out of our sin and into a new life with him. But man, how quickly, how quickly we backslide. So easy. Just as the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt, think of what the Israelites have been through, what God has already done in their nation. They escaped death at Passover. They plunder their enemy. They cross the Red Sea and watch their enemy destroyed. They're given water to drink and manna to eat. They're given a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They had seen and heard the presence of God on Mount Sinai. They've been given the commands of God. And they even committed to follow and obey. But Moses, their leader, is gone. And apparently, there is absolutely poor and inept leadership. And they revert back to the sin of their hearts and search for their own God. 
Now we're going to chunk this because we've got a lot to get through. I have no idea how two weeks ago Brent did like four chapters in one sermon. Uh, this is just one chapter and I'm pushing. Uh, we're going to chunk this into four points. So if you're a note taker, here's, here's kind of my big four themes that I want you to see. Verses 1 through 6 is sin. 7 through 14 is mercy. 15 through 29 is judgment. And 30 through 35 is going to be this foreshadowing of atonement. You can write atonement. So we have sin, mercy, judgment, and atonement. I'm going to read uh, 32, 1 through 6. It's going to be the only part of the passage I'm actually going to read today. Everything else I'm going to kind of point out and have you underline and just have you be aware. Encourage you to go back and read it on your own this week. So here we go, 32, 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, if you're an underliner, underline, the people gathered themselves together. And Aaron said, and gathered himself together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. Underline that, gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know where he, what has become of him. So Aaron said to the people, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons, daughters, and bring them to me. Underline this one. So all the people, but no one is innocent, all the people, took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said... They is the mob here. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be the feast to the Lord. Underline that, the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat, drink, and rose up to play. So what we see here is that Israel turns us back on God. Growing impatient, they take things into their own hand. Like Adam and like us, they decide to be like God. They want to chart their own course and their own destiny. They reject what they have been taught of true worship. Instead, turn their backs on the covenant that God has made for them. They seek alternative worship and alternative gods. Now this is Israel as a nation, their original sin. Right, we've seen Israel grumble, whine, complain, be an absolute just pain in the rear to Moses and to Aaron and to the leaders. But to this point, they have followed God. They have maybe followed God grumbling, but they have followed God. At this point, what we just read is what God is going to refer to as the greatest sin or the great sin. They've committed idolatry. And unfortunately, it becomes their culture and their pattern, and it leads to generations of rebellion against God. Think of what you know of the Jewish history. Think of what we did last summer in Judges and the cycle of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion that the Jewish people live in. Now here, back to the text, we see in verse 1 that the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now this actually is an interesting phrase. Because it's not like they just came to Aaron asking for advice. It's not like they came to Aaron asking him to solve a simple squabble or a simple problem. This, is, this language here is incredibly aggressive. It is a mob mentality. So they gather themselves 
And they mob together to confront Aaron, to bully Aaron into what they want Aaron to do. The people have lost trust in where Moses is and have lost trust in Aaron's ability to lead. And this loss in trust to the plans of God leads the people of Israel, and if we're honest, it leads us to sin. When we lose trust, when we lose sight, when we lose faith in what God is doing in our life, isn't that when the wheels come off? Isn't that when you slide down the hill and into sin? The people have been given direction for life and the rules of engagement with others and with God. With Moses on the mountain, they lose sight of this purpose. They are preparing to build a tabernacle. Knackle, right? That's what God is giving Moses, instructions to build the tabernacle. They are being led to the promised land. But unfortunately, none of this happens at the pace that the people desire. So here's irony number one, or at least statement number one. They bully Aaron to make us gods who shall go before us, completely forsaking what God has already done for them. All right, again, think of where they're at. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. Where are Moses and God? Moses is on the mountain. How does God show himself? He covers the mountain in a cloud. Right? God is literally there. A couple of verses before when they got the Ten Commandments, God's voice was so thunderous that they begged Moses to have God not speak to them anymore. God is there. And the absolute irony and folly of this moment is they think that this golden calf we're going to read about is going to be a presence that leads them when they are at the foot of God Almighty. Right? They're at the foot of God Almighty. Back in Exodus 14, 19, God's already said that he would lead them with the cloud and with the fire. In 23, 23, he promises he's going to take them into the promised land. And he will take care of any of the people who are there. That The land will be theirs. He's gone before them. He's promised to lead them. Now to quote John Calvin one more time. Quote, in this narrative we perceive their monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. Right, think about that for a second. We just talked about that. All the things God has done to bring them out of their 400 years of slavery, to now be at the foot of Mount Sinai, and to say, what happened to this Moses? Right, we need a false idol now. How incredibly dumb can you be? Could they not see the pillar of fire in the cloud? Was he not near them in ways innumerable? Aaron is a complete failure as a leader in this passage. Now in chapter 28, God established the Aaronic priesthood and he, called, he was called to be the high priest and to lead the people in worship and atonement for their sins. But here, instead of leading, instead of rebuking, holding the truth, Aaron capitulates. Aaron gives in. He builds an altar and he declares a festival to the Lord. And he blends pagan, idolatrous worship with the worship of the one true God. Again, how easily, it's only been 40 days, how easily and how quickly the mob perverts and persuades Aaron away from his call and his duties. And why? What for? To be led by a golden calf? A golden calf. Something that's created, that has no morality, has no wisdom, has no ability to lead. So think back for a moment as we get to the golden calf. Where did the gold come from? Israelites were slaves in the land of Egypt, right? 
They had nothing of their own. It came from plunder from God that he promised as they escaped Egypt. Israel asked and the Egyptians gave. So now, not only are the people dumb enough to not see God right in front of them, but they use the very gold that God gave them to make an idol. Now, step back for a second and God ask yourself, well, what's the purpose of the gold? Right? The gold isn't here as a promise of prosperity gospel. God didn't have them steal from the Egyptian. Not steal is the wrong word, right? God didn't have them receive uh, the divine gifts from the Egyptians uh, just to make them rich. That wasn't the purpose of the gold. Think through what we've talked about the last two weeks. Where do we see gold used? God is gathering resources for his tabernacle, for his kingdom, and for his purpose. This gold was going to be used in the construction of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. The people now have not only defiled and broken the first two commandments, but they have defiled the very gift of God, perverting its intended purpose. Right, what God had deemed for good, the people have now defiled. If we had time, we'd read Psalms 106, and David rebukes the people, recounting the stories, what he does. Uh, but we ask ourselves, as we get to this calf, why a calf or why a bull? Which, based in ancient mythology, the bull would be a better uh, description here than a calf, you may ask. And if you're not asking, you probably should. Uh, so, well, apparently, what we find... It was a whole lot easier for God to get the Israelites out of Egypt than it was to get Egypt out of the Israelites, is what we see here. So cows, bovines, bovine cults flourished in Egypt. Several Egyptian gods were depicted as cows or bulls. Even the creator god in Egyptian mythology was a bull. Now what I want you to do is take a moment and remember back to Exodus 9. Remember the plagues. What were the plagues for? Yes, they were to eventually move Pharaoh's heart to let, his, to let God's people go. But what did God also do with the plagues? He specifically attacks and undermines and destroys the gods of Egypt. Now in Exodus 9, the fifth plague was the plague of cattle, where God destroyed the cattle in the land of Egypt. But here the people still turn back to what they knew. They turn back to what was comfortable. They turn back to what was easy because... If we're really honest with ourselves, they had not fully committed themselves to God. And when you fall back in sin, when I fall back in sin, can you do that with a full commitment to God? If you're fully devoted to God's call in your life, and I'm not making a plea that you can live a perfect life, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm asking you to really self-reflect on the moments where you fall back in to those sins that eat at you. Is it because there's questions of God's faithfulness? There's questions of God's trust? There's questions of God's intent in your life? There's an opportunity to do something that you really want to do, even though God is leading you a different direction. Now in verse 4, part B, And they said, the mob, These are our gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In four short verses, the people have broken the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship a graven image. In four verses, 40 short days, the people have forsook 
their proclamation to follow all that the Lord has given them or commanded. Now in verse 5, here's where I want you to focus back on that phrase, the Lord. Aaron proclaims a feast to the Lord. Now Aaron doesn't just use a generic name for God. This isn't lowercase g. Right? This isn't God is your homeboy. Right? This isn't just an easy conversational inter- interaction with God. Here, Aaron specifically uses the holy, sacred name of God. This is Yahweh, the Lord, that Aaron is now proclaiming an altar and a festival to. I was thinking through, gosh, idolatry is really the point I want to drive home. How do we drive home the point of idolatry? Probably um, any other pastor on the planet uh, this is a great opportunity to take us down a, a litany, a list of all the materialism that gets in our way of God. I think we could talk about money and sex and cars and houses and 401ks and jobs and careers and the list goes, our kids who are going to be the next great athletes and right all the way, we can go down and down and down and down and down the list, whatever that is. But I don't really feel like that brings home the weight of what this is. Take a second and think, what is it that would be the deepest, most aggressive, most offensive cut that you could experience in your life and in a relationship. I'd like to make the argument that idolatry is ultimately an act of adultery towards God. Right? When we, the church, who is supposed to be the bridegroom of Christ, because Christ is our groom, When we turn to other gods, when we seek pleasure outside of God's plan and will and God's provision, what we have said is, God, I can find something better somewhere else. We've committed the ultimate, right? Anyone married in the room, the ultimate cut to our loved one, our most sacred one, to God the Father Just like the Israelites, we revert to sin in the blink of an eye because it's what we most comfortably know. It's the easy road to seek self over God because that's the condition of our hearts. We want what we want, and we want it now. Lord, nowhere else on the planet is that more true than here in the States. If you've ever traveled outside of the States, but nowhere else in American culture is that we want what we want, and we want it now. We want to go to church, but only when it's convenient to our schedule. As long as the kid doesn't have a ball game, as long as I didn't work late last night at work, as long as the right person is standing on stage preaching today, then I'll come in, I'll come to church. As long as I don't have a better offer from somebody else, uh, I'll come to church. God, how dare we? How dare we? We want to be part of a church, but not accountable to the church. We want to put the sticker on our car. We want to say we want to go to Four Points. We want to call this our home. But man, when there's sin in our life, Pastor Elder better not come talk to me. That's my life. Whoop, cross the line. Nope, that's my life. Stay away. I may sit in your room, but you have no right to speak into my life. Don't judge me. Right? How quickly do we do that? We want the blessings of being a Christian, but we don't sacrificially give our money, time, and talent. Just like the Israelites. They wanted the gold. They wore the gold. They made earrings out of it. They made jewelry out of it. Right? They wanted the gold but they perverted the blessing of God. 
Are you using what God has given you for the worship and for the plan of God? Are you using the resources, the wisdom, the skills, the knowledge, and the time that you have to invest in kingdom work? And we want forgiveness as a get-out-of-hell card, but we don't want to fully commit or obey. We want to have our cake and eat it too. Right? We want Friday night to be Friday night. I'll come on Sunday, but Friday night's Friday night. Going out with the boys, going out with the girls, whatever that means, right? We want to accept the Bible, or we claim we accept the Bible, but only where we agree with what it says. We want the easy parts of the Bible. Bible starts talking about giving money. Bible starts talking about judgment and wrath, death for sin. Bible starts talking about sexual impurity and immorality, marriage between a man and woman. Yeah, that just, yeah, God, that's just not loving. That doesn't feel right. I don't know that I want that. We want God, but only on our terms and only in our image. We want to make the God that we serve. We don't want to serve the God who made us. Because we have a perverted view of God. And unfortunately, a perverted view, and that has led into a skewed view of the church. Like Aaron, we, this is the church at large, has a tendency to capitulate to the whims of the world instead of preaching the truth of Scripture. Ligonier Ministry has just released their 2022 study on the state of theology. It's a survey where they surveyed believers and non-believers and asked them questions about theology and their beliefs. Uh, I want to focus specifically on what the evangelicals agreed with, where the evangelicals scored. Now, all of you are probably going to say, well, that's a really broad term. What does evangelical mean? So I'm going to give you, here are the four criteria. If you participated in this survey, they classified you as an evangelical if you agreed with these four statements. The Bible is the highest authority for what I believe. That seems good. It's very important to encourage non-Christians to believe in Jesus as their Savior. Okay? Got a witness, a great commission. Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that removes the penalty of sin. All right? Only those who believe in Jesus as Savior receive eternal salvation. Okay? I think we can live with that. That's a, that's a pretty solid definition, I think, of an evangelical, as broad as this study is. If you want to put up on the screen for me. Here is what churched evangelicals said. 73% state that Jesus was the first and the greatest being created by God. Church evangelicals. Mary Beth, I need your like response on camera. That was pretty good. Um, no, no, right? Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Right? Jesus was not created. Jesus is God. 58% believe God accepts worship from all religions. Well, we just read, read that's not true. I don't even know how you get to that statement when you read the Bible. But 58% believe that Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims, right, their worship is the same incense as that of a believer to God Almighty, or it's the same God. 56% believe that worshiping alone or with immediate family is a valid replacement for attending church. No. Look, if you're on camera because you have a physical ailment, you're not able to be here, you're traveling out of town, thank you for dialing in. Thank you for participating. Thank you for worshiping with us. 
But if you have the ability to be here, we are called as the church to gather together. You need, we need pastoral leadership. We need sacrament. We need discipline. We need fellowship. That is the church. Sitting at home in your pajamas because it's easy is not church. 55% believe the Holy Spirit is a force and not a person. Uh, No Star Wars here, right? Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He lives in you. We know that he groans on our behalf. 55% believe that everyone sins a little, but people are good. They apparently have never read Romans. <laughs> or they listen to a little too much of a, who's the country singer? People are good, whatever that dumb song is. So, um, uh, right? I mean, what in the world? No, Scripture clearly tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Scripture clearly tells us no one is good. No, not one. 53% disagree that the smallest sins deserve eternal damnation. To use your shirt, Jason. What is wrong with you people? Right? What is wrong with you people? No. Sin, regardless of whether it's a white lie or regardless of whether it's a half-truth, is sin. God is holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. All sin deserves death. The wage of sin is death. 44% say Jesus was a teacher but not God. We've already addressed that. 43% agrees with the statement that God learns and adapts to different situations. No. Lord, I'm so thankful to hear your responses and to see your faces. No. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is immutable. God does not change. God is on the throne forever. That's exactly right. Right? God does not change. God is sovereign God. He is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is omnipresent. He is outside of time and space as we know it, directing and guiding his plan in our lives. Church, this should be an absolute wake-up call. Like, we have to stand firm and be salt and light. We have to, as we've studied throughout the New Testament, Testament, we have to stand for the truth and to speak out and to guard against false teachers. We just went through Jude. Every New Testament book we've gone through, what is the call? The call is to guard against false teachers. Our families and our communities depend on it. If If this is what church evangelicals believe, what is the hope for the lost? What is the hope for the unsaved? If this is what's coming out of American churches today, I mean, it's it's all I can do to not say what I really want to say. I mean, it's it's absurd. It's ridiculous. Verse 5 through 7, Aaron leads the people... Now, not only have we committed sin, not only have we committed idolatry, but now he's going to lead them in this blend of true worship and idolatrous worship. Because he's trying to appease the crowd instead of, instead of staying true to God. We see Aaron builds an altar. The next day the people awake, they offer offerings, they eat, drink, and they play. Instead of putting the gospel on display, they put themselves on display. Now, what's interesting in that word play, it actually means revelry. Uh, and then you can find a couple of transition, uh, translations where it goes a little bit beyond that. The word picture here is the people descend into absolute and complete moral decay. It's the idea here that the people have engaged in a complete orgy is what this is. 
right? They sacrificed, they ate, they drank, and now it's no rules. Irony number two. Whereas in Exodus 24, 11, the elders beheld God and ate and drank in true worship, the people now indulge in moral depravity at the altar of their false god. Worshiping a false god does not bring purpose, does not bring absolution, only brings emptiness. All right, next point, mercy, 7 through 14. Moses has been in the mountaintop with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And in the last two days, the people have committed the gravest of sins. And God draws a line. As you read this text here, it says that he, his wrath burns with anger. He is done with these people. Sin has a consequence, and God is ready to judge. But before we get to this, let's look at a couple of interesting parts of the language. First, God separates himself from the, English, I mean, from the Jewish people. Think all through Exodus. Throughout Exodus, God says, these are my people. I am the God that will bring you out of the land. I am the God that will take you into the promised land, right? All of Exodus up to this point, it's I am the God, you are my people. I am the God, you are my people. What do you see here? You see here, right, God says, Moses, these are your people, right? This is like when your kid does something stupid and you look at your spouse and goes, that's your son, right? I mean, God's like, I don't want anything to do with these people, like, what in the world is going on, is what I feel like God is saying, in this righteous indignation. The people have corrupted themselves and turned aside quickly. God's holiness cannot be in the presence of their sin, for the people have worshipped a created image instead of the creator. They have fallen into moral corruption and sexual impurity. They have become self-destructive and spiritually empty. Now, on top of this, God also gives them a nickname that will stick with them for all of eternity. This is where we first see the phrase stiff-necked. If you're an underliner, you can underline it, stiff-necked. And this is in direct reference to a beast of burden because they have become stubborn and unruly and out of control. As believers, the burdens of sin weigh us down and they shackle us to this world. Brent talked about this a few weeks ago. Freedom of choice doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to slavery and sin. The people here are shackled to their blindness and their self-desire. But Jesus reminds us in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 and 30, to take up my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Right? Jesus provides a yoke that is free from sin because Jesus' body and blood pays the sacrifice, pays the price for us that we cannot pay for ourselves. He makes us righteous. He restores us to God the Father. Now in verse 10, we return to God's declared judgment. His wrath burns hot against them and he vows to consume them. Now if, we, if this was like a serial TV show, right, this is the cliffhanger. Right? We get to this idea, up until now, God has always claimed the people, claimed the people, claimed the people, claimed the people. And now I'm going to wipe them out, Moses. Thankfully, we don't have to tune in next week. We're going to get to the end of the chapter. And the, but the question is, how is Moses going to avert this disaster? What is God going to do to save the people? And a closer examination of 10 through 14 answers this question, but in a really curious way. This is where many theologians, teachers, and pastors have stumbled into what's called open theism. This idea that God can change his mind. That we as people somehow have the ability 
to convince God to do something contrary to his will. That's not what is being said here. God seems intent on final judgment, if only the translation was a little cleaner. Now, therefore, let me alone, is what he says. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. He's not slamming the doors. He's not kicking everybody out of the house. But he's setting Moses up for a test. Instead, what God is saying is, if you leave, I will destroy the people. If you stay and intervene, the people will survive. He's given Moses a test. He's testing the character and the faithfulness of Moses. Now catch also the last phrase in verse 10. He also, not only is he testing Moses to see if Moses is going to step up as a leader, but he also says, Moses, if you leave and I destroy the people, I will make a new people out of you. So now, right, Moses can be the head of the Israelites, not Abraham. There can be a whole new line. So there's a test here. Will Moses stand firm in his faithfulness? Obviously he will. Obviously God knew that Moses would succeed. So Moses pleads and intercedes for the mercy of God and stands in the gap for the people. Right? He has become a leader of action, devoted to God and to caring for the people God has put in his charge. Through Moses' prayer, we see how passionate he is for the glory and the will of God. God has invited Moses to act and to engage. Moses lives up to the test. We see great wisdom in Moses here. Think about it. If you were called out for sin, if you were going to God to beg for your life, we don't see Moses make excuses for the people. It is clear that Moses recognizes what the people have done is sin and is wrong. Moses doesn't make a selfish request. Instead, we see beautiful wisdom. He speaks truth and character back to God. Look at verse 11. He appeals to God's power. God, you are the God who took the people out of Egypt. Verse 12, he appeals to God's reputation. God, why would you take them out of Egypt just to destroy them so the Egyptians can doubt and question who you are? Verse 13, he appeals to God's promised covenant. God, you said you will make a people out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is your people. So Moses doesn't change the mind of God because as we've already said, God is immutable. He simply acts and carries out the plan that God already had for him. So church, when you're at a crossroads or you see a brother or sister struggling, and it's a time to pray, have faith, take action in the strength and the wisdom of the Lord. We're to pray God's will. We're to believe that God hears our cries, his Holy Spirit is groaning on our behalf. We are to lean into the Father, not with excuses, but praising his character, his holiness, and his faithfulness. If you're in the audience today and you're struggling with sin, don't make excuses. God will not be mocked. Repent. Ask for God's forgiveness, and he will delight in showing you mercy. Now, there are consequences. We're going to talk about it here. Um, but how much better is it to be right with God and under his holy discipline than to be called stiff-necked, out of control, and out of God's plan? Irony number three. Moses led by giving the people what they wanted and getting... I'm sorry. Aaron led by giving the people what they wanted and getting out of the way. Moses led the people by giving them what they needed 
and standing in the gap. Fathers, family leaders, husbands, believers, are you going to stand in the gap? Are you going to stand in the gap? Are you going to pray for the, God's will to be done? Are you going to act? Are you going to have courage? So we've seen sin and we've seen mercy. Now let's look at judgment, verses 15 through 29. Moses doesn't delay. He doesn't waste time. Like he, right? This is, a, this is like a crazy moment here. He's got to get down the mountain. He's got to see what's going on. He's got to correct the people. He is on a mission. And he carries the tablets with him in verse 16. Now these are really special tablets. Think about it. These are the original. These are the ones on both sides that God etched, that God wrote. These have been touched by the hand of God. He's running down the mountain. Halfway down, he meets Joshua. And Joshua says, right, his, his general, his confidant, Joshua says, I don't know what's going on, but it sounds like war. Right? He hears the noise of war. And Moses says, that's not war, that's singing. And sure enough, as they get close enough to the bottom of the mountain, they can see the camp, and they see the calf, and they see the dancing. And who knows what else they see in the revelry. And Moses' anger burns hot. It's the same phrase that we see with God's wrath, where God's wrath burns hot. It's a righteous indignation. It's this idea of Jesus clearing the temple, of the money collectors and of the merchants. It's this idea that God's presence will not be in the presence of sin. It must be cleansed. It must be removed. Now in verse 19, Moses sees the sin of the people, and what does he do? I would probably say some very unnice things. Moses throws the tablets down, and he breaks them. Now we just said in verse 16, these are like the sacred tablets that God etched himself, and Moses breaks them. Why would he do that? Well, he does it for a very specific and symbolic reason. These were the covenant law of God. What have the people done? The people have broken the covenant law. As Moses slams the tablets down, he declares that this covenant is broken. Verse 20, the only remedy is to destroy the idol and to call the people to repent because judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Now he doesn't just like stomp the idol up and throw it away. He burns it, he grinds it, he mixes it in their water, he makes them drink the bitterness of their sin. So then as it works its way through their digestive tracts and out is excrement, right? The idol is worth no more than a pile of dung. He completely eliminates and destroys the idol. Verse 21, the confrontation that you know is coming happens. Moses confronts Aaron. And we see Aaron continue in his passive and his weak leadership. Apparently, he's never read the book Extreme Ownership, if any of you have read that before. Because as opposed to taking responsibility, he deflects and blames the people. The people made me do it. Moses, Moses you know these people. They're evil people. And then, in verse 24, he's like really dumb enough to say, I don't know what happened. I like threw the gold in the fire and out came the calf. Right? Completely, right, ignores what we saw in verses 1 through 6, where he physically crafts the calf. It's magic, God. I don't know. Now, what's interesting is we don't see Moses rebuke Aaron. 
I know that's what I would want to do. Right? I mean, if I did something that dumb, I hope Nick would come up and like shape me and knock me out. Right? That's what should happen. But we don't see that. But if you go to Deuteronomy 9.20, you do see that God wants to destroy Aaron. And again, Moses stands in the gap and intercedes because sin has to be paid for. There's a penalty for sin, and that penalty is coming. So in verse 26, Moses draws a line, and he says, who is, on, who is on the side of the Lord? Come to me. This is the call to repentance, because judgment is coming. Who is on the side of the Lord? Come to me. Now, if you remember back in verse 3, it clearly says all the people, all the people were a part of this idolatry. Now, we see here the only people who repent are the tribe of Levi, the Levites. The Levites come to Moses and repent of their sin. Now, that's a beautiful theme because we see that not all the people are destroyed. The Levites recognize, Levites recognize their call as the priestly tribe. So when confronted with sin, do you, brother and sister, do you repent? You should repent. You absolutely should. When in life, has making excuses or blaming others ever helped the situation? When? The only answer is to repent and take responsibility for your actions. 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of that unrighteousness. So as believers, don't flee and make excuses and run from confession. Instead, run from sin into the arms of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because those who don't answer the call of Moses, those who don't repent, judgment is here. Verses 27 and 28, Moses tells the Levites to put on their swords and to kill their brother, their neighbors, their community. And 3,000 people die that day, which is only one half of 1% of the entire population. So maybe in that first 3,000, the rest of the people got the picture and they stopped. But 3,000 people died that day. Because there is only one God, the Lord God, whom we as a church are called to worship and to serve. Put idolatry and immorality to death in your life. Pursue God and his holiness as nothing else matters. Right? Use the word of God. We don't carry around physical swords, but you carry around the word of God. Use that as your sword, parsing and discerning truth. For the evangelicals and for the non-believers who have no idea who God is, consecrate yourselves to the Lord. Call people to repent. Irony number four, following their personal choice did not lead to freedom, it led to death. Personal choice did not lead to freedom, it led to death. Uh, if the ushers and uh, the band want to come on up and get ready for uh, communion and start passing out the elements, we're going to go into our fourth and final point. So verses 30 through 35, atonement. So we have sin, mercy, judgment, now atonement. Moses has come to understand there is a cost and a price for sin. As seen with Adam and Eve, a blood covering is needed and demanded. As the law has revealed and as the tabernacle sacrifices have confirmed, sin must be paid for in blood. But whose blood and how? Because we don't see a conclusion in this story. Who is worthy? Because Romans teaches us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, to me, this is a really cool part in Moses' life. This is a pivotal moment as I read Scripture. 
Think of where Moses has come from. He was an orphan. He was a son of Pharaoh. He was a murderer. He was an exile. He was a coward. He was a reluctant leader. He didn't want to lead the people. He made every excuse he could to run away from his calling. Now, he is the mediator. Now, he is the intercessor. So Moses knows sin has to be paid for. So he makes the ultimate offer of the ultimate sacrifice. Verses 30 through 32, Moses goes back up the mountain on behalf of the people and offers himself in the place of the people. Moses says, God, forgive the people. And if you won't, blot me out instead of your people. Right? Take me as your sacrifice instead of your people. But what we know, Moses' offer was rejected because people need a perfect substitute. They need an unblemished lamb. Sin can't be paid for by another sinner. It can only be paid for by the sinless. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. Jesus is our only imperfect mediator. Only Christ can pay the price for our sin. Only he can reunite us and restore us to God. Through confession of Jesus as our Savior and repentance of our sins, we are declared righteous. Baptism is an outward expression of this covenant as we are dead to sin and we are raised in Christ. With communion, we remember the body and the blood of Jesus who gave himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. There are those of you in the audience who until today have lived your lives without any thought to sin, purpose, consequence, or God, but during the last hour have felt the call of God or heard the still small voice of the Holy Spirit say, turn, I beg of you, listen, repent, turn to the Lord today. Begin life anew as a believer today. Believers, evaluate your heart Confess your idols, repent and turn to Christ. Church, don't be lukewarm to be spit out by Christ. God has called us to him. Jesus is returning to establish his eternal kingdom. Stop serving two masters. The way of the world is empty, cold, transient. The way of the Lord is eternal and fulfilling. Pray with me. Dear God, thank you for your message today. Thank you, God, for the call away from idolatry and the call to you. As we prepare for communion, Lord, hear our cries, hear our prayers, hear our repentance. Lord, restore us to you.